0: Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. The podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor.
1: Hello. Hey, can you believe it? This is episode number 99. Thanks for helping me get this far along. I hope you'll be here for episode 100 in a couple of weeks. Quick reminder, the ACPLS, that's the Association of Commercial Professionals Life Sciences, will be meeting in San Francisco on October 24 through twenty-sixth. If you're in sales or marketing in life science, this is the meeting for you. Go to acp-ls.org for details. Now, let's dive into this episode. Jeffrey Whitford is Head of Global Corporate Responsibility and Life Science Branding at Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Jeffrey, thank you for taking the time to share your story today.
0: Yeah, I'm more than happy to join you, Chris. Glad that, uh, glad that we can have this conversation.
1: So we met at the CEN, Chemical and Engineering News Science Marketing Event, in Boston last month, and I just want to encourage everyone listening to follow at Mag. On Twitter, they set a really good example with their own content marketing, and they put on a great science marketing event for free for the last two years, typically following the ACS fall meeting. So um, check those guys out and keep an eye on what they're doing. But today, we're going to talk about, um, I saw Jeffrey speak at this event, we're going to talk about marketing, the idea of corporate responsibility and sustainability, which you know, might seem to some people to be squishy or how, you know, what's the ROI on that really is I think what we're getting down to. But first, yeah. let's clarify what Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany is, as opposed to all the rest of the Mercks and how you got there. Share that story because I think it's not only interesting, but also inspiring.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a mouthful to get out. Uh, we know that uh, but history has given us uh, an interesting story to tell. You know we're celebrating our 350th anniversary uh, this year, which is a really remarkable feat if you think about it. So the company started in 1668 uh, here in Darmstadt, Germany as a pharmacy. Interestingly enough, that pharmacy is still still in business today, the Engel Apoteka in Darmstadt, not the original location, but an iteration of it. But from there, the company began a process of starting in pharmaceuticals and chemicals. And they have since grown their presence as the years had passed you know they decided to branch out and build their company and become a global company you know really before a lot of people were doing that you know in the late 1800s early 1900s they established a presence in the united states and then world war 1 came along and uh, the government intervened and at this point they expropriated any assets of german companies that were in the us so they separated the company and then created a U.S. entity. And I think at that time, uh, the powers that be thought it was a great idea uh, to name it Merck & Co. The Merck family was still involved. Actually, um, one uh, one of the family members had gone to the U.S. to set up the U.S. subsidiary. And so that branch of the company and the family still existed, but it was now a separate entity. So it had nothing to do with Merck KGA, Darmstadt, Germany. And so it created a branding nightmare that that we're still dealing with today. So you have uh, in the rest of the world, except for the United States and Canada, you've got um, our company, which is known uh, as Merck. Uh, In the United States, uh, we have uh, multiple entities for our healthcare life science and performance materials division. Um, Our life science division is known as Millipore Sigma, which is a business of Merck KGA, Darmstadt, Germany. My journey with the company began um, about uh, four years ago, almost to the day. Uh, I was just coming back from a trip abroad, and uh, the morning after I landed, my phone started blowing up at about four or five in the morning. And I was like, "What in the world is going on? I just want to sleep." You know, I just got off an international flight and wiped out. And at this time, I worked for Sigma Aldrich. I was the director of global citizenship there. And the news was that our company was being acquired. So they came in, they made the acquisition. Uh, it was their largest acquisition at about seventeen billion dollars. Uh, so buying Sigma Aldrich to build up their life science presence. But for me, that journey was, you know, filled with a lot of change and a new world and learning a new product line and thinking about the combination of my role, which uh, I was named to the head of corporate responsibility uh, through the acquisition. But how do you extend the value that we had extended at Sigma Aldrich with our green chemistry platform, which really is an industry-leading platform? How do you take corporate responsibility and turn it not into something that is, like you said, squishy, soft? You know, People think I'm out hugging trees all the time. Um, How do you take it from that? And turn it into something that is value add, that really brings something to the company, to the customer, that is a tangible benefit. And I think learning a new product portfolio and thinking about how this expands or connects everything that we've got together certainly was an interesting challenge. The scale that we deal with is so much larger now. And the expectations are bigger, which is a great challenge to be given and something that we're, you know, beginning to tee up all the different pieces we need to fire on to really deliver, I think, on that for our internal stakeholders and for our external stakeholders.
1: Nice. Yeah. So the other part that Jeffrey didn't mention, and maybe we got to do this on another podcast, but your personal journey through the world of science is pretty amazing because you were a marketing major, right? Advertising.
0: Yeah, right? um, my yeah. background is in advertising. I thought I would go work in an ad agency, and here I am 14 years later, uh, okay. just knee-deep, Well, I'm probably neck-deep at this point uh, in science.
1: Yeah, and your first job was proofreading the Sigma Aldrich catalog, which of course now I'm sure everybody is has milk coming out their nose if they're listening to this during lunchtime going, yeah. Oh my gosh, that must. Yeah. That, that, must that's,
0: that to me is probably one of the most interesting ways. And it, it kind of is fitting for me. You know, I got a call to be, uh, to ask if I wanted to have an internship proofreading catalogs. I had no clue what the company was. Um, I had no clue what their catalog was and it turns out it's a 3000 page catalog. Um, and I literally would just stare at pages on a daily basis to see if there were printing irregularities or things that were way off. You know, my dad joked with me and said, "You've got two options." He he said, "If you you can ask people they would like fries with that, or you can go to St. Louis and proofread catalogs." And I was <laughs> like, "Well, I guess I'm going to St. Louis."
1: <laughs> All right. So that yeah, that's an awesome story. Um, so you've managed to make corporate responsibility a substantial business benefit. your company and you're helping customers solve the same type of problems where they work. So how did that get started? Yeah,
0: you know, I had the fortune at Sigma Aldrich to um, be part of kind of the genesis of the program. Um, And it really came together at a perfect time for me because as this was happening, I also was going back to get my MBA at Washington University in St. Louis. So I kind of had the perfect, perfect playground in terms of learning some things and then being able to practically apply them um, right, you know, immediately, which to me was such a benefit. And what I did was took a kind of a lay of the land and we really took a look at the frameworks that were in play for corporate responsibility, global citizenship, CSR, whatever you want to call it and said, what are the things that we can do and look at the people who are really blowing it out of the water? And what's that application look like for us here at Sigma Aldrich? And I think my aha moment or revelation that really was a term, turning point for us was the idea of driving sustainability into the product. You know, there was a lot of people who were doing things like packaging sustainability, which is a great thing. We're actually going... At, a huge packaging sustainability project right now. But I did it in kind of reverse order. I actually went for the thing that I think was harder, which was figuring out sustainability into the product. Because what I was seeing was the people who were really excelling at this, who were setting the pace were people who were driving sustainability into the product. So figuring that out for me figured it made me say this is a way that we can differentiate our company and our product offering and add value to what is probably one of the most challenging spaces to think about because it's very complex. You know, if you think about the the requirements of science and what science actually touches in the everyday world, it's really a part of almost everything. So I thought if you can get at the core of what your what your starting point is, your multiplier effect is going to be massive. And so that's really when we started looking at things like green chemistry, because that's the core, you know, a core piece of our business. And if we could take the 12 principles of green chemistry, which is a globally accepted framework, and drive that into what we did that was really going to be the point that we could recognize a benefit. And that's exactly what we did, was take that, drive it into the products, and then really start to see the different conversations we were able to have with customers, because this was something they hadn't heard about before. That it was a new lens that was being applied and really seeing tangible benefits with a very clear framework, thanks to Dr. Anastas and Dr. Warner, who published that framework. So we built off publicly available information and then put our own spin on it, which turned out to be for us really a transformational moment in terms of demonstrating value not only to our internal stakeholders, but to our customers as well.
1: All right. So I will certainly put a link to the 12 principles of green chemistry in the show notes for this episode, but just to get people thinking about what that is, because it's hard for me, even as, you know, with someone with a biochemistry degree to imagine what what that looks like. Just give me one or two examples of those principles so people can kind of understand what types of things we're talking about as we go forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think You know, the 12 principles cover a wide range of things. And, you know, we find that some are easier to deal with than others. But one of those examples is safer solvents and auxiliaries. So this means you're looking at the toxicity, the hazard profile of a material and saying, can we find a, a material that does similar things and use that rather than using something that has. A higher hazard level. So, thinking about solvent switches, for example, is something that seems kind of basic. But interestingly enough, what we see within science is that if it's worked for a decade or a century, you just keep doing what you do because you know it's going to work. And scientists, it's an interesting, I think, characteristic trait. As curious as they are, there are some things that they just don't want to mess with because if it works, they don't want to mess with it. But they are about exploration. So it's a weird dichotomy that actually exists there. So it's a challenge to get people to do that. Another one is pollution prevention. You know, we have a tough time with pollution prevention because the monitoring equipment that's needed is very sophisticated and not necessarily inexpensive. And so to be able to do pollution prevention monitoring as a component of the 12 principles of green chemistry, that's a nut that we're still working on cracking. But it just starts to show you the variety of things that you're looking at. You're looking at energy use as a component of this. So it is pretty wide-ranging, but it gives you a lot of points that are clearly defined, which that's the helpful piece, right? It is a clear framework uh, to work through, but it gives you those pieces to take a look at and say, can I make a checklist out of this, and how does this affect or work with the work that I'm doing?
1: Okay. So... Let's go back to the inspiration and then we'll talk about how you made this all happen. I understand you were inspired by something at Nike, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, So the part of me getting into this space was I think me being a sponge. I really look and listen and try to read, to read what's going on. What are people doing? What's working for them? What are the different things that are happening? And I happened to read an article about how Nike used a system that they had created around their materials uh, that they use for their product creation. And they gave this to the designers as a challenge you know, Nike is an environment that is, you know, competition-based. They're all about sports and just doing it. And I think it was really interesting to read the work that they did with their own teams and their design teams to say, we're going to challenge you to think about the design of your product to do it more sustainably. And so to see that play out in an industry that's not really related to ours at all is something that I found quite interesting. And so I took what that concept at a high level and said, you know, if they are able to do something like this to where they can grade their materials and really give quantitative aspects to them, why can't we do that for ours? And that led us down the path of creating uh, the system that we call Dozen, a play on 12 uh, for the 12 principles of green chemistry. And so we took uh, those 12 principles and we created algorithms for each one of the principles based on our, we'll call them recipes for manufacturing for our products, and then GHS or the Global Harmonized System for um, products, MSDS information, basically, and plugged that in together to create algorithms for each one of them. We then took that, did some testing on it, and we also worked with a third party to validate our approach to make sure it was scientifically accurate and that we were accomplishing what we were out. setting out to accomplish. And this really became something, I think, that we didn't necessarily expect. But if you think about it right now in the conversation of green chemistry, there is talk about, you know, let's go do it. But once again, thinking about what a scientist is all about, a scientist is all about data and quantification and analysis, and they weren't able to do that with green chemistry. And so the transformational moment here with Dozen is that now you're enabling scientists with data so that they can make informed choices based on something that you can actually quantify and so that was the beginning of a journey. And we've always said that we don't think that the system is finished. We think this is an iterative approach, that we wanted to start something and begin a conversation with folks to talk about how do you how do you sharpen this? How do you make it better? Because we've got to start, but we know that there are more steps that we need to take. And that has led us to Dozen 2.0, which we hope to have out on the market uh, for our customers to actually be able to use uh, at the beginning of 2019, which is a really great uh, accomplishment. But this then puts the the system in our customers' hands, so they'll be able to look at a process that they're doing and judge it in multiple ways. So if they were to switch a material out or if they were to do something that had a fewer number of catalytic steps, then they could see what the effect of that was in the system and say, okay, if I do it this way, it's got an environmental footprint or score of X. And if I do it this way, it's got an environmental score of Y. So once again, it's helping people make more informed choices. And I think that is such an important part of this entire process is giving people data so they can make better choices. And as a person who really abhors data and uh, and numbers and analytics, Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny coming from me. But I think that's the conversion of somebody who was afraid of data before who really does actually see the value of it and the power that you can do when you enable people to make decisions with good data.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> you have learned well, Grasshopper. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about the process of developing this, this algorithm, if we haven't covered that already. Like, what did it take to yeah. put it together?
0: It was long. I, I'm not going to lie. And I, I joke, and I've written about this before. I have a couple of my team members, specifically um, two PhD chemists on my team. And I think for probably a couple of years, they were ready to strangle me mm-hmm. because I would be in meetings and we'd be having conversations. We would be talking with partners. And, you know, in my mind, everything could be accomplished in like 18 to 24 months. And I think they just sat back and were like, if we could like kill you with looks right now, you would be dead five times over. Because in my mind, I was like, let's push it. Let's go faster. And it's a learning process of what it really takes to make significant change happen, whether that be the development of you know, a novel material or it's something like a system like this. So this was a process that started with a summer intern and one of our scientists, um, in St. Louis. And it lasted, it lasted three summer interns. So it was a development process that probably took two and a half years to get to the point where we were ready to test because it just took so much research, going back, modifying, testing, research, try it out, not get it right, keep going then you know, talk to uh, experts about it. And I was woefully underestimating what it would take to do something like this. But fortunately, we had people who did really great note-taking and left a really good breadcrumb trail for the intern that followed them. Um, and Sami, who is one of the PhD chemists on my team, uh, is really amazing and, and kept up with it. And I think tenacity and... A realization of that we had, we're onto something. We didn't know exactly what led us to keep up with it, but it was not a short process. And you know, I think that's that's a lesson too: is that you know, often the things that are really worth it take a whole heck of a lot of work. So you need to have uh, lasting and staying power to be able to stick with it, so that you can really get out something that is meaningful. And I think that process has certainly has certainly been worthwhile now looking back on it because what we have is something that, you know, I get reports back. One of my team members was at, was at one of our academic partners in the UK two weeks ago and they want are and are looking at including this in their curriculum, in their teaching. And for me, you know, this is something I would consider like a work child. Like this yeah. dozen system was like a child for us. And we have, You know, it was born, it was a fledgling toddler. It is now like starting to like become a little person and people want it. And that is a remarkable and really validating thing to hear because it has been a labor of love to get there. But I think it does, it does showcase the need for really high standards and excellence but making sure that you've got a product that's going to be worthwhile to people and that process and those wonderful interns, Patrick, Eli, and and Nick, who helped with this, um, you know, their blood, sweat, and tears and probably frustration at me was absolutely worth it. And I think that's that's one of the great lessons of this, this process.
1: So that's, yeah, that's really cool. One, you've made an impact. So kudos to you for that. Two, I love the long-term thinking. I mean, I just I really appreciate that someone realizes and your company bought into the idea that this is going to take a while until it pays off for us, but you stayed with it and you built this thing. So I want to ask, again, to put a picture on the algorithm. Is it like you're building a flowchart of how to approach a chemical process and think about all the steps you're doing and what can be replaced and so on?
0: So right now and how it started, the algorithms were really based on comparison. So we, the initial kind of request was we need a way as we were beginning the process of re-engineering our own products. So this goes back to the driving sustainability to our own products. How do we actually measure and then, convert and convey that to our customers. Because one of the things and one of the principles we've said about our greener alternatives product portfolio is that we need to have evidence-based proof, right? Um, It should never be a situation where we say, well, that's greener because Jeffrey said so. Because I'll tell you, that's a horrible way to go. I should (laughs) not be making those calls. So, this is where the system comes into play. So, I'll give you a quick example. We have a product called beta amylase. This is a product that's an enzyme that comes from sweet potatoes. Yep. I love this example because it's actually a funny story in terms of I can tell it and it's not overly technical. Uh, we had two scientists in St. Louis who were working on this, and they actually were doing research about um, craft brewing and winemaking process. At So they weren't doing this at work. That was just at home. And it came across a reference from a text from 1953 about stripping a polyphenol more effectively. And they were like, wait a minute. I think we can actually bring this into the office and use this. And they actually did that. So they brought that in. And what we found was through that process, we could do this conversion much more effectively and with a whole lot less. So we were able to go from using 6,000 pounds of sweet potatoes to using 2,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. We completely eliminated the use of organic solvents. So we used a lot of acetone in this process. We completely removed that, and it became an aqueous-based process. And then there was a lot of uh, electricity used to uh, heat up and uh, And create pressure to convert. And so we were able to eliminate that as well. So you've got these great things, but how do you actually communicate that to a customer? And this is where the kind of need for something like Dozen came in. And so what we did was we were able to take recipe A, put it into the system and score it against the algorithm. Out comes the score. Then we put in recipe B and did the exact same thing. So it was a basic comparison. So the initial system was quite simple, but that's the that's also part of the learning here is it is one thing to dream big and go for it. It is another thing to make a realization of what's possible because where you're at and the information and experience you have and build to that with the idea of iteration and iteratively improving something. And that's one of the, I think, key things that we did was we said, we're going to scale this to a point where we know we can get at something that's useful, and then we will build off of it to turn it into these next iterations of things. So step one was comparison. Step two is moving to a much more advanced tool that starts to do process-driven calculations like you're talking about that are really much more complex. So it's, you know, it's a work in process. We've been in testing with UC Berkeley. That's gone really well. They gave us some really great feedback. We're implementing that right now. But it's a much more complex system now that is going to take process calculation to a different place for us.
1: So now we kind of have an idea of what you've done. Now the hard part. How did you sell this idea internally? How did you get people to say, yeah, that's a good idea, Let's do it. Yeah.
0: For me, this was um, probably one of my strongest strategic moments without knowing that I was being strategic. i go back to what we said about understanding the frameworks. So we looked at things like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. We looked at the CDP. We looked at Global 100 at Davos. We looked at Newsweek Green Rankings. CR magazines, Top 100 Corporate systems, all of those things we used as a framework. And what I and the team started to do was chip away at getting the data to match up what was needed within those frameworks and how we were judged or compared and what we had internally. You know, the good news was we had a wealth of things. It was disparate and in different places, but we started to bring it all together and combine it to understand how those frameworks worked and how we matched up to those frameworks. And you may be like, what in the world does this have to do with that? And the point here is what happened was we started getting recognized by these indexes. And what was interesting about that is you don't know about Sigma Aldrich unless you were a scientist, to be honest. We started getting named to these things and our name was with Google. It was with Goldman Sachs. Uh, It was with a lot of big name companies and our executives were like, hold up. Um, We have not had our company in this space, in this type of conversation ever. Something interesting is happening over here. And I think what I like to say about it is that they trusted me enough and they gave me enough rope Not to hang myself, but to like try things out and give me, I think, runway to prove what we were doing. And what we found was that it kept reinforcing itself. So, you know, we would make, you know, a big step forward something would happen, we would get recognized, then we would drive into another area, kind of build it out, and the same thing would happen. And this allowed us to build a reputation internally. That reputation internally became something that we leveraged as a component to really say, you know, we want to work with you, um, other department. Um, We have been, you know, fairly successful in getting recognized um, and we're getting a lot of traction here. We'd like to share that opportunity with you and really partner on something and bring you along on that ride or vice versa. And you know, it worked. And so we built a really strong internal relationship with a lot of different departments that allowed us and they allowed us to come alongside what they were doing. And I think one of the things that we've always tried to do was not create initiatives to create initiatives, but say, how can we, how can we really come alongside and partner with you to then advance or accelerate using a different lens on what you're doing and, and pull out even more value. And you know, we had people who were generous and kind, and um, you know, maybe were like, "Well, you know, he can't mess it up too much, so we'll we'll let him dabble dabble around over here," and that turned and manifested into a green chemistry portfolio. It manifested into you know reducing our carbon footprint and energy uh, use. It re- it manifested itself into significant reductions in water use. It it just blew out in all these different spaces. And that kind of recognition was the part that gave us credence as a as a legitimate piece of our organization. And that legitimacy, and, I would say, strong advocacy and champion championing from my boss, our general counsel, it was a tremendous gift looking back on it. And you know, I think one of the things that I've been very fortunate with on my tenure at uh, Sigma Aldrich and now at uh, Merck KJA Darmstadt, Germany, is I've had amazing leaders who are great champions and advocates. And that makes a tremendous amount of difference because I can have a certain number of conversations, but with those types of champions and advocates, they can have a whole lot more And they help validate what we're doing. And that approach and a track record of delivering, right? None of this is going to be possible if we don't actually deliver what we say we're going to do. And at the end of the day, it's a very powerful combination of having, I would almost even call it a buffet of options. There are so many different verticals that the team is working on right now that are tangible, that are meaningful, that speak to the request that our customers are giving to us, that our sales team members are asking for, that we're able to say, here is an industry-first program for that. Here is a (laughs) thought-leading approach for this. Here are some very basic but simple tools to help address with that. And I think that piece has been the ultimate gift in building this um, practice that we've got right now giving us the runway to try it out because we deliver and it is just a it's a repetitive cycle. So we have to make sure we deliver. And I'm so fortunate to work with an amazing group of people. I, I do have one of the strangest departments in terms of backgrounds. We've got social <laughs> workers, we've got comms people, we've got engineers, we've got PhD chemists. I mean, we are kind of like the island of misfit toys. But a really amazing island of misfit toys who are power combined. It's kind of like we are captain Planet. it's pretty it's pretty remarkable.
1: You've taken the approach that sharing this process is better than keeping it a secret. So and I mean sharing it with your customers so that they can take advantage of the same sorts of things. So what has that done for for your business?
0: You know, it was a there was this a, you know a big debate, and we went through the process to understand from a legal standpoint if this was something that we could trademark or would it be a trade secret. You know, I was like having visions of becoming Colonel Sanders and having the recipe in the vault, you know, in the caves. Um, but what we ultimately decided, after going through that process, was that the likelihood that customers and especially scientists who are so inquisitive and curious, would want to know what was happening behind it, we would actually stunt ourselves if we decided to keep those um, keep those algorithms to ourselves. And so we made the decision to make them publicly available and actually publish the paper and publish everything, including the algorithms. Because for us, the competitive advantage wasn't necessarily in the algorithm itself. It was probably more likely in the thought leadership perspective of leading that conversation about um, green chemistry and quantitative analysis of green chemistry and being a I think, an open and collaborative business about it. Um, One of the things that we like to say is that the trust our customers have in us on this topic in particular is paramount. And the second that we lose that trust, this whole thing is done. And so that makes us operate in a different manner. It makes us you know, think twice or three or four times about the decisions we make and how we frame what is a greener alternative. That's why we have high standards for uh, what we deem something as greener. You know, it needs to have um, a dozen score where we can pull up the results of what the analysis was, or it needs to have a third-party published paper about an application that is greener. Um, And that aspect is what leads us to have that relationship with the customer. And I think that's the piece that drove us in terms of kind of lifting the the curtain. And, you know, if this was Oz, you know, letting people behind the scenes of what it looked like because we wanted and needed to make sure that our customers trusted the system and that they trusted us. And so it was in our best interest to do something that probably seems Counterintuitive in terms of of giving away um, all of that work.
1: Yeah, but definitely, I see the the advantage, and I love that you point out. It's this is a great example of a thought leadership advantage. <laughs> and you had a choice, like, yeah, should we just make this a secret and just tell everybody we've got it, and you should do business with us, or take a hike, or particularly with something in the corporate responsibility realm, like if you really care about the earth, why wouldn't you share it? (laughs) Like, yeah, you're not not really helping the earth, it's just you. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, we would have been in a position, you know, it's almost like the pot calling the kettle black there, where we're like, we really care about the environment, but we don't care about it enough to share it with you so that you can actually determine if this is legit or if this is just kind of black magic.
1: Yeah. My yard's green. You're on your own. Um, Right, exactly. All right. So, um, and you tell me that you have not yet put much into marketing this whole idea. It's sort of gotten this traction organically. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we... um, is the sheer volume of the amount of work that we have. So it's not only just like the dozen system. It is uh, work that we're doing to bring novel, uh, novel materials to market. We're also doing consultative work with customers who come to us and said, "We need solutions." So, you know, we have we have to play multiple roles. Um, our team, and once again, if you hear the background of what I I said from our team members, we have two people on our team. That's me being one, and another person who have a background in communications. That leaves the other um, twelve of us, or other uh, ten of us, that don't have communication as a background. And in fact, some of them think it is like probably the devil and a foreign language combined. So they don't have that as an innate skill, but we are not only program managers, but we're also communicators. And this is partly because of how our organization is set up and organizationally we are within communications, communications and corporate responsibility, but we are our own communicators for our programs, which creates an instance where we also need to communicate about them and we have to set up the communication plans and work with the teams to get everything out. And, you know, that's one of the things over the past, you know, few months that I have been personally focusing on because it's been a gap. And especially as a person who my background is a communications background, and it's frustrating to me that we haven't done more, but this is the interesting part of it is watching it almost sell itself Uh, in terms of, you know, we published a paper on it uh, in ACS, uh, Sustainable Chemical and Engineering. That was... A really remarkable moment in terms of us getting the word out in a way that for us was not typical. You know, we don't do a lot of white paper scientific publishing. So that was a huge leap forward for us. And that started a chain of events that, you know, I don't think we fully understood. But what we also see is that things like the strength of the uh, sigmalders.com our website is really remarkable. It's an industry leader uh, in life science. And it has such dynamic, I think, search engine optimization and uh, such a following in terms of scientists using it for reference, but also for shopping, you know, for a lot of different things. So we're able to drive more awareness through that. But the next phase of this uh, is really about us starting to push it more into... A communication space that's campaign oriented and driven, and so that's going to be one of the focuses that we have going into the close of this year and in the beginning of next year is turning that into a compelling campaign that starts to increase the conversation about this as we start to get more adopters who are using it. You know, the work with with Berkeley, the work with uh, the university. in the UK, and I think that's what we're looking to do is how do we amp up what we're doing and make it a compelling, information-driven uh, campaign to help people start to see the benefits and then tie that to um, tie that to people who have adopted it and who are advocates for it as well.
1: Jeffrey Whitford, I want to thank you for taking the time to share all of that with us today. I want to let people know, of course, I will put the link. Um, to the 12 principles of green chemistry in the show notes. I'm also going to link to some of the articles you've written for Money, Inc. So let everybody know that you write a regular column for Money, Inc. And people should definitely follow you on LinkedIn. I'll put a link to that so they can get an education on extremely practical and important matters for their business.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to to chat with you. I think there's, um, we get to do a lot of fun things and it's, uh, something that like I am, am just so fortunate that this is my job. Uh, cause my job really isn't a job like it is, but it isn't. We get to do amazing things. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to have the conversation with you today.
1: That was a fun episode. It's nice to see how you can do the right thing and gain a competitive advantage from it. You should definitely pay attention to what Jeffrey's doing on his blog. You should also pay attention to what your audience is doing, and what a lot of them are doing is listening to podcasts. If you haven't thought about using a podcast as a channel for your marketing, maybe you should. I've got some ideas and the experience to help you make that work. Email me, chris at com. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, tell a couple of friends. I'll be back in two weeks for our 100th episode.